I've thoroughly enjoyed our study in the book of Romans, and I've been looking forward to this day for a long time. I've been studying Romans 14 for several months now, and to say that it's shaped my view of how to be a Christian would be an understatement. It's really shaped my view on a lot of things, and I hope and pray that I can share some of that enthusiasm and some of that joy with you tonight. I've entitled the study Romans 14, an answer to the crisis of identity. And I believe that when we consider Romans 14 and we heard the things that we may have heard about it in the past, about how it deals with the matters of judgment between brothers and sisters in Christ or liberties or opinions that we have, we may look at it as an instruction book on how to deal with brothers and sisters when it comes to matters of judgment. And while Romans 14 does teach about how to deal with matters of judgment, it's by no means that that's all it's about. I believe that underneath it all, it's really a a book or a chapter, rather, about the subject of identity and where your identity is, specifically your identity being in Christ, and how when it's not rooted in Christ, that that is when these kinds of problems come about, when we start to struggle and strive among one another with these opinions. Establishing some definitions for the purpose of our study, let's define liberties. So liberty, liberties, or judgments, they are practices or beliefs that in and of themselves they are not commands, they are not doctrine, or matters of sin by omission or commission. These are opinions. These are not things that God explicitly, explicitly states that you should not do. And I think as, as we study Romans 14, we need to remember that it is an extension of Romans 12 in the sense that it is all about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Romans 12 and 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The goal of Romans, the entire book, is to be in Christ. It's to have the right perspective. It's to give us the right attitude from that perspective, and it's to get us to the right actions. As I said, it's to be in Christ. To be more specific, it's to be in God through Christ and ultimately to remain in Christ. That's the goal of everything that we read about in the book. It's to get us to that point, and Romans 14 is no exception to that. I think as we move forward throughout the study of Romans 14, we're going to jump ahead a little bit, but it's going to make sense. We're going to jump into the middle of the chapter because I believe verses 17 through 21 is pretty much the crux of the entire chapter. And looking at those verses and understanding the principles lined out in those verses is going to help us approach the chapter in, I think, a very enriching way. So Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness, and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended, or is made weak. So what's a few things we can learn from this passage of Scripture alone? Number one, we can learn that the kingdom of God is not these matters of judgment. It's not these opinions. It's not these liberties that we have. That's not what it's about. We've been afforded those liberties, but that's not what the kingdom is about. It's not eating and drinking. We serve Christ. We're to pursue peace and edification among one another. We cannot destroy the work of God for the sake of those matters of judgment, which the kingdom is not about. And it is evil for us to do things that are judgment-related with offense to our brethren. 
It's these principles that Romans 14 is founded upon. And that as we move forward, I think it'd be important for us to remember. So remember, it's about a change of perspective, a change of attitude, a change of actions, ultimately leading to staying in and being in Christ. So with that being said, let's dive deeper into the chapter and examine it passage by passage. Let's start with Romans chapter 4, beginning, uh, or Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. He says there, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. The admonition here is clear. There's a dichotomy between two things here. It's receiving and disputing, or you might put it as bringing to you and pushing away. It's about a receiving and denying. And those two things cannot be misconstrued. Those are two totally different things. It's about receiving a brother and pushing a brother away. He says to receive the one who is weak and eats only vegetables. I find Romans to be a book of bookends. I've talked about this before, and it's one of my favorite things about the book, but throughout all of Romans, you'll find these neat little bookends where a chapter or a, or a passage will begin with one thought, and then it will be bookended by another thought that makes it really nice and neat to get the point that's being uh, conveyed within that passage, and this one's no different. It starts with the bookend of receive the one who is weak in the faith, and it ends with the bookend, for God has received him. So why are we supposed to receive someone who's weak in the faith? Because God has received him. And we're trying to be like God. We're trying to be like Christ. That's the reason that we receive them. That's where the identity in Christ begins. Never mind that the brother has a different opinion about you on a matter of judgment. It starts with being in Christ. Because God has received him, that's why we receive him. There's this principle of God bringing people together across the spectrum of opinions, and he calls us to do the very same thing. We know that in Romans, as has been established already, that in Rome at this time, there had to have been Jews who would have had compulsions to eat certain things and not eat certain things. So there was definitely these moments where there would be people who would be conflicted in their conscience that they could not eat a certain kind of meat without offending their conscience towards God. And what Paul is saying is that those people, we're going to find out later that that's okay that they don't do that because that's a matter of judgment. But what's the modern-day application for us? Because it's not just about meat and drink. It's not just about holy days, because that's what the chapter specifically gives us an example regarding, but it's not just about those things. This chapter isn't just teaching us how to teach or how to treat the vegetarian brother or the vegetarian sister or the sister that celebrates Christmas or Easter or, or whatever. It's teaching us how to deal with matters of liberty. So I may look at a brother or a sister who is choosing to abstain from meat, and if my identity is not founded in Christ receiving them, then immediately I'm going to view them through the lens of that opinion, and I'm going to keep them at arm's distance. I am not going to receive them if my whole opinion is based on, well, my opinion, if my whole view of them is based on my opinion and my liberty and not Christ. An important question we need to ask ourselves when that's the case, when we're looking at our brother or sister that has that opinion that's different from us, is our standard greater than God's when it comes to receiving people? receiving brothers and sisters? Would we reject the person that God receives? That's a question we need to ask ourselves when we're struggling with these matters of opinion. Another thing to consider is that it's not always about receiving. I mean, I think as we go through this and we hit this point about receiving brothers and sisters, we might forget that there are times in Scripture that people have been cut off from the body. One time in particular in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
Paul is talking about someone there who has sinned a sexual sin that he quotes as saying, it wasn't even named among the Gentiles. So it was bad. And he's calling them to cut this person off. He says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Skipping to verse 11, he says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So if you read those two things in opposition to each other and you didn't understand the context, it might look like Romans 14 and 1 through 3 is disagreeing with 1 Corinthians 5. And it's not. It's because 1 Corinthians 5 is based on something that's not a matter of judgment. Romans 14 is based on judgment. There is a specific command to abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. There is a clear command not to do that. And yet this person was an open, unrepentant sin doing that. And that's why they had to be cut off for the sake of the body. But notice that it was so that they could be saved. But there is no command to abstain from eating meat if we're using that as an example of judgment here. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. 1 Timothy 4 and 1 through 5 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So here he specifically says that abstaining from food with, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. The sin here that he lines out is the forbidding of that food. But it's okay to eat the food. There's nothing wrong with the food. It's been created by God to be received with thanksgiving. Bless it and thank God for it. There's nothing wrong with eating it. So it's a matter of judgment. And for that matter, choosing to not eat meat isn't a sin either. That's not the point of the passage. They're two different issues entirely. One chooses to sin openly against the commands of God, and the other chooses to do that which keeps their conscience clear to God on a matter of liberty that's been afforded to us in Christ. So what's the modern-day application for you and me? The application is to the one who eats, the one who is strong, the one that believes they can eat. Don't despise or look down on the Christian who chooses not to violate their conscience regarding matters of judgment. Why? For God has received them. And you. To the one who doesn't eat, don't seek to impose your restrictions based on your conscience on the Christian who chooses to exercise their liberties. Why? Because God has received them, and you. This is how we pursue peace without violating doctrine and core convictions. It comes from having an identity in Christ. And... I think before we go any further, it may sound like I'm saying that we can't talk about these opinions, and that's not the truth at all. You can talk about opinions. I mean, if you hang around me long enough, I talk about my opinions a little bit here and there, but it's okay to talk about opinions. 
If it was wrong to talk about opinions, Paul violates that later on in the chapter where he says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul would have violated the whole concept of not discussing these things by simply saying that. So it's not wrong to discuss these things that are matters of judgment. Some people might say that you can't discuss matters of opinion in the church because it's just divisive or confrontational and that you shouldn't do that. Well, in a way, that's another form of restriction that can lead to further division if you repress those things. It's all about doing them in the right mindset and with the right heart. When your opinion becomes the enemy of peace between you and your brother, that's when it becomes a problem. I like the way that the ESV puts verse 1 concerning this. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. It's not about not discussing things. It's about quarreling over them. It's about fighting over them. It's about dying on that particular hill. I said I wanted us to consider Romans 14 in light of our identities, and I believe that this is the genesis of the problem, is where our identity is founded. Who we belong to, who we serve, we don't always understand that. We don't always understand who we are and what our identity is. I was having a conversation with a business associate not too long ago, and he, he likes to travel abroad quite a bit, and he said it's really interesting. When you go to other countries, there's, they, they ask you, what do you do in a different way? Like here we'll say, what do you do? And we'll answer, well, I'm a farmer, I'm a teacher, I'm an I'm a electrician, I'm an engineer. In other places, I guess they, they ask you, like especially in le- Europe, the phrase is, um, who are you? And that's not to say what your name is. That's what defines you. What makes you you? What's your identity? That's a question we need to ask ourselves, is what is our identity? What defines us? I would hope that the answer is that I'm Christ's. Moving on to verses 4 through 9. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats to the Lord for excuse me, he who eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So already in the very first verse, he's telling us who we are. He's firmly establishing what our identity is, or rather what it is not. Who are you to judge another servant? You are not the judge. To his own master, he stands or falls. It's not your job to judge the other servant. I've looked at that question in the past and often received it as a rhetorical. You know, somebody will walk up to you kind of antagonistically and say, who do you think you are? And if you're feeling cheeky, you might answer and, you know, try and get back at them. But usually you're not supposed to answer that question. It's a rhetorical. And I've always looked at this question as a rhetorical. But there's actually an answer to this question. Who are you to judge another man's servant? The answer to that is you are the servant. You are the servant. You are not the judge. You're not the person that's been put in the seat of judgment. You're the person that's been put in the seat of mercy. We're the servants. We're not the ones that have been given the job to judge in the context of what Romans 14 is talking about. 
We can get so caught up in our opinions and in our matters of judgment that we're prepared to cast judgment and hate a brother for exercising a liberty or choosing to not exercise or abstain from a liberty when the truth is we should be so caught up in Christ that we're prepared to let every man be convinced in his own mind concerning these opinions, concerning these matters of judgment that are not doctrine. Why do we feel the need to convince our brother or sister not to be convinced in their own mind? Why do we feel the need to, to press our opinion on these matters? I believe from time to time it comes from a skewed sense of what's important. We think that if everybody could get to our level of understanding on the particular issue, because let's be honest, when it's our issue and when we really, really feel good about it, we want everybody to understand it the way we have it in our minds, when it's an opinion matter. And this was really convicting when I thought about it. What Romans 14 is addressing is it's teaching us that we can be so prideful to think that getting other people to believe our opinions is somehow better at producing unity than preaching the gospel. We can spend all this time on trying to get our opinion across to somebody and we forget that it's not about opinions. We're so prepared to die on the wrong hill. I mentioned that earlier and it's ironic to me in a wordplay sense if you think about it, but Christ literally dies on a hill so that we could have unity with one another. And yet we go over here and we die on a hill of our opinion and we produce division. And they're a tale of two hills, basically. For instance, let's go on this since we're on the subject of days. Let's talk about Christmas for a moment. So some people celebrate Christmas as a holiday that recognizes Christ's birth and they see it as a day to glorify him and lift him up. And some Christians see uh, Christmas as just any other day of the year that's been sanctioned by the government as a government holiday, and it's a day off. And it's a time to celebrate with family and have a supper together and exchange presents. Both of those people are Christians. One person is celebrating that day under the Lord, and the other person is celebrating that day not under the Lord. Both are the Lord's. But where we get in trouble is despising those who may celebrate to the Lord, and where we get in trouble is being the one who celebrates it to the Lord and judging the one who doesn't, saying that you should. And we get so concerned with putting Christ in Christmas that we're about ready to take Christ out of Christian, that we forget how to act like a Christian in that moment. We're dying on the wrong hill. And that's not to say that Christmas isn't a good time. If that's something that you can do and be an influence, do it. But the point is not to die on that hill and cause your brother offense in the process. But in order to get my brother to believe my opinion or conform to my judgments, the truth is, is I cannot love him properly. That may sound harsh, but you think about it for a moment. If I'm trying to get you to believe everything that I believe on a matter of judgment and that's the way that I view you, how can I truly love you? 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Let that sink in for a moment. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Loving your brother is what shows you have come from death to life. And in the context of Romans 14, what does it mean to love your brother? It's what we've talked about. It's understanding that it's a matter of judgment. It's a liberty that's being exercised in Christ and it's a conscience that doesn't want to be violated by exercising this liberty. We act as if we owe a great a debt of gratitude to our opinions instead of Christ. So we fight for our opinions like they died for us. 
But what does Romans 14, 9 says? It says, for to this end Christ died and rose that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Our judgments and our opinions didn't die to become Lord. Christ did. A question we might need to ask ourselves is, how close are we to the Lord? That plays into identity, doesn't it? How close we are to Jesus? How close are we to the Lord, and how much does that play a part in conflict arising? Try to think back to when you were in elementary school or, or uh, middle school, for that matter, and think about a PE class. I can remember in a PE class in middle school, and to this day I'm still, I'm still convinced this was a social experiment that was conducted, but the, the teacher or the PE person leaves the room for a second or just goes to the other side of the gym, and we're not completely out of view from them, but we're left to ourselves. And you can imagine the chaos that ensues. You start to have alpha dogs that say, you can't do this or you can't do that. The teachers I know will agree with me on this. And you have some people that will say, well, you have to play the game this way. You have to do it this way. You can't do it that way. And they start forming these little micro communities of rules all because the authority is left. And then when the teacher comes back, all of a sudden, they're wondering what's going on. Why is it devolved into chaos? Why are you trying to make these rules when I'm gone? I'm the one that sets the rules. I'm the teacher. Why are you doing this? It's like Lord of the Flies. And we get to looking around, and it's because the authority is out of view. The authority is gone. Only the thing is with Jesus is we don't, he doesn't leave. We push him out of the way. And he's no longer Lord. And he's, he's no longer the source of our, our identity. This is a groundbreaking chart that I made. Um, this chart on this line on the left, and I know this isn't how charts work, but the line on the, on the left or whichever side you're looking at it is the closeness to Christ's axis and the depth of conflict line. The top of the line means you are close to Christ. The bottom of the line means you're far away from Christ. Top of the line, you are far away from conflict. Farther away over here, you're far away from Christ and you're deeper in conflict. Pretty simple stuff, groundbreaking, but what better way to understand Oh, excuse me, let me back up here. Why do we gravitate towards this way of thinking? Well, I think it comes from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. We think our path is the path, and we don't think of the Lord's path. What's really interesting about Romans 14 is, is the more I've read it and the more I've come to understand it, to, to me, it's the true version of what people say when they say, we're all on different roads heading to the same place. Like, this is the example of the truth of that, because it's all within the confines of the straight and narrow way. When other people say that, they mean it's all these different roads that eventually converge on Christ or eventually converge on heaven. This is talking about that and all these different opinions, but they're still within the parameters of the truth. What better way to understand that we are not the judge than to be told who the judge is and how all that plays out? Verses 10 through 12 of Romans 14, it says, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Again, with the book of Romans being a book of bookends, this book ends the verses that we read earlier in Romans chapter 14, verse 3. It's talking about the weak one being the one who abstains from meat and passes judgment on the other, and the strong being the one who eats and looks down on the one who doesn't eat. So this passage is talking about basically the same thing. But the focus of the passage is about God's judgment and about his righteous judgment. That's the object of this passage right here. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. 
But we judge others as though they're accountable to us when we start placing our opinions above the truth. Or rather, our opinions is our identity. I want to look at really quickly at two examples of how this plays out. Let's look at Jesus first. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, this is, Jesus, or this is Peter talking about Jesus, saying, who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. This is Jesus' response to the righteous judgment of God. This is him committing himself to God in response to worldly persecution. This is his view, this is his identity, and how it causes him to act. Now we have Peter, who we can all relate to. John chapter 18, verse 8 through 10. It says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus, Jesus said unto Peter, Put up your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Jesus answered, My kingdom, this is skipping down later on, uh, Peter talking, or excuse me, Jesus talking to Pilate concerning his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here, or is not from the world. Notice the opposition of associations here. Notice what's in opposition. It's Jesus submitting to the righteous judgment of God, and then you have Peter who's fighting, and he's struggling with men to prevent the plan of God from coming about because of his lack of understanding of the kingdom in that moment. And it causes him to fight. Now that's associated with Romans 14 in this way when it's the opposition of these two views. We have the view that says we are the Lord's, we live under the Lord, and that produces unity and peace. Then we have we are our judgments or we are our opinions, and that leads to quarrels over opinions and judgments and fighting and war. And it's all because of a skew of identity. And you might think to yourself, well, how in the world is Peter lopping off an ear of somebody in the Garden of Gethsemane? How does that apply to us today? Well, ask the question, how close are we to lopping off our brother's or sister's ear when it comes to our opinions? Have you not seen conversations where the opinions get so heated between each other that we're ready to be at each other's throat because we have a lack of understanding of what the kingdom is about? You know, this is an interesting association with me, but in both instances, in the garden and today, who steps in to prevent further division? Physically, Christ stepped in in the garden to prevent further division. And today, he still steps in to prevent further division. The question is, do we let him? And I just found this to be interesting, but what's really neat about this is it's almost in the same way that, that he reaches out and grabs the ear and, put it back, and puts it back on Malchus is the same way that he repairs division and disunity in the church today. That may sound funny to you, but I just find that to be an interesting correlation between the two. I do think this is an important question to consider. Romans 14.10, but why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother, for we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ? We're looking for others to concede to us. I think that's the reason why we judge our brother or sister, that we might pass judgment on them. We want them to bow the knee to us and our judgments and our opinions instead of trusting God to have the knees bow to him. In a way, Romans 14 addresses a faith crisis in God's judgment, in his righteous judgment. And it's not in a way that says, well, they're going to get theirs because they believe the wrong thing. It's let's just trust God to be the righteous one here. 
This is us placing people in the body as it pleases us. 1 Corinthians 12 and 18 says, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body as he, as he is pleased. So God has set members in the body as it pleases him. He is the Lord. He's the one who judges. And I'd like to illustrate that by looking at a chessboard. John Mark didn't want to get out of the picture, but... This is the way that a chessboard is supposed to be set up. This is God setting those in the body as it pleases him. Now, I know that that passage, that that chapter in Corinthians is talking about gifts and whatnot, but the overall idea is about how God sets up the body. Andrew talked about that verse this morning and how his view of the body is and how our view should be just like his. But this is the way it's supposed to be set up. You can play the game naturally this way. Everything goes well. This is us setting people in the body as it pleases us. It's all messed up. We can't play the game properly. Charles, Brian, will play a game eventually like this one day and see how it turns out. But this is us trying to set things the way that we want it to be, and it's utter chaos. It's pandemonium. This is God's perspective on the body. But one and the same Spirit worketh, works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills, for as the body is one and has many members, but all are the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. The focus is on all, all the members, but it's in Christ. And that breeds this perspective, 1 Corinthians 12 and 22. It says, No, much rather, these members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unrepresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which, which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. God has a way of taking the things that we would see them and flipping them on their head and showing them how they work better his way. There's no division, there's no schism, all because we care for one another and our identity is founded in Christ. We cannot assess honor in the body. And that's the mindset that we have whenever our identity is our opinions. Next passage, Romans 14, 13 through 15, says, Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So again, we need to change our mode, or our, we need to change or move our perspective from adversaries and placing people where we want them in the body to this. Rather than judge, think about this. Don't create a stumbling block. Worry about your brother's welfare. Don't put him outside. Worry about him going outside due to our judging on these matters of opinions and judgments. You know, the, the, the piercing question to me has always been, why do I have this need whenever I'm convinced in my mind of an opinion to share it with somebody and say they just have to think that way in order to be on the equal playing field with me? And the question I ask myself is, do I love having brothers and sisters in the kingdom, or do I just love having brothers and sisters that agree with me on every little pet peeve that I have? When someone puts their liberty as more valuable than their brother or sister, that's when we begin to sacrifice them on the altar of our opinions. 
But the truth is, is it's not wrong to convince somebody about the truth of an opinion. It's when it becomes confrontational. We've already read about this in 1 Timothy 4 and 1 through 3, but I want to go back to it again. Remember, it was a doctrine of demons to command somebody to abstain from foods, to command somebody to abstain from meats. That's where the sin was. But the truth that we read there is it's okay to eat meat. It's okay to do that particular thing. It's not wrong. So it's okay to have that conversation. It's when we forbid, and it's when we judge those who choose not to that it becomes sin. Moving on to verses 16 through 17. It says, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This comes back to the principle that we started with, with what is your identity? Do you know what the kingdom of God is? It's not eating and drinking or matters of opinion, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is agreement on all these matters of opinion more important than righteousness, peace, and joy? I believe here that when he says, uh, don't let your good be spoken of as evil, what he's talking about there is the partaking in matters of opinion or the eating of meat. That's the evil, or that's the good that he says, don't let be spoken of as evil. And then moving on to verses 18 through 23, this will be the last part of the lesson here, but for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved of by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed pure, indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. First question to ask here is, what does he mean when he says these things? For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable and approved by men. Well, I believe he's talking about the eating of meats and the not, not eating those meats or eating those things not in violation of their conscience. That's what he's talking about there. And approved by men simply talks about those in the church. But focusing on verses 19 through 21 regarding the making of peace and edification with one another while not destroying the work of God with the evil of eating with offense, we have a situation here where people would basically exercise liberties in spite of their brethren or just not knowing that it was in spite of them. Or that they were so oblivious that they weren't aware of their brother's predicament. I'd like you to, let's go back and look at 1 John 3 and 15 through 16 again. Remember, it says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If you sit across from your brother or your sister, and they don't eat meat, and that's their conviction not to eat meat before the Lord, and you take a bite of a big greasy hamburger in front of them and your intention is to just upset them and make them feel bad or make them feel silly for not exercising a liberty, I'm convinced that that's hating your brother. And I've been there. Just because we have a liberty to exercise doesn't mean that we should do it. This last passage right here at the end of the chapter, it says, from whatever is 
or excuse me, for whatever is not from faith is from sin. For the longest time, I looked at this passage and thought that it just meant that the weaker brother needed to have more faith, that that was the whole point of the chapter. And that's not really what it's saying. Notice how he says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is from sin. What it's saying is that if you're the brother who doesn't believe that they can do that particular thing and you choose to go ahead and do it, you're basically showing that you have a rebellious heart and that you're eating against your conscience or you're doing that particular thing against your conscience. It's basically what Paul said where he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. We should always consider whether something is lawful to do, but we should take heed to consider whether or not it's wise or helpful in the end. So in conclusion, I would just ask the question that we asked earlier. Who are you to judge another man's servant? We are the servant. And if you're not a servant of Christ here tonight, we stand ready to help you make that decision if you've been sufficiently taught. And if you are a servant of Christ here tonight and you need the prayers of the church for any reason, we'd love to help you with that. Just please make it known by sitting on the front pew while we stand and sing the song of invitation.